Hey everyone, it's Josh. Before we start the episode, I wanted to share some thoughts about some of my favorite podcast series. The first podcast I fell in love with was On Being with Krista Tippett. I used to take long walks and listen to her talk with amazing thinkers and doers. From On Being, I got hooked on Radiolab, which since 2002 has been devoted to investigating a strange world and making science more accessible. For a while there, I got pretty hooked on Intelligence Squared US, which digs deep into the great questions of our times using an Oxford style of debate. A couple years ago, I became obsessed with two truly epic series. In the first, called Hidden Brain, host Shankar Vedantam uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior, shape our choices, and direct our relationships. In the second, called How I Built This, host Guy Raz dives into the stories behind some of the world's best-known companies and weaves a narrative journey about innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists, and the movements that they built. I also love the series Next Question with host Katie Couric and The Daily with host Michael Barbaro. Finally, a shout-out to a very cool podcast coming out of Hawaii called Journey with Mumpo. Mumpo is spelled M-P-H-O, Journey with Mumpo. Host Mumpo takes her listeners through conversations around the mind, the body, the heart, and the soul. Please check it out. Anyway, the best way to support your favorite podcasts is to listen often and give them a rating in your favorite podcast store. And now, on to our show. Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the Senate. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. This April 2020 episode is coming to you at a pretty crazy moment in world history. We're in the middle of a global pandemic that has already taken the lives of thousands of people and shifted economic and cultural paradigms in ways we could not have imagined just weeks ago. For those of us in the education community, distance learning is now the new normal and the big challenge. Many sectors of our economy have come to an abrupt halt at great personal and economic cost. Other sectors have stepped into the chaos and are innovating to provide what people need to survive and even thrive in this crazy moment. Today, we are with Brian Dote, whose resume is long, interesting, and because of its diversity, a bit hard to describe. Let's call him chiefly a mobile technology designer, engineer, and developer, among many other things. He was the chief innovation officer at Mid-Pacific Institute, a cutting-edge school in Manoa Valley here in Honolulu. Hawaii Business Magazine named Brian one of the 20 individuals to watch for the next 20 years. Brian's boss at Mid-Pacific once wrote, quote, Brian opened the door to a cultural shift that emphasized divergent thinking and technological pursuits across the K-12 continuum, unquote. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Josh. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk. Awesome. So, Brian, we have this 10-question format on this show. So the following 10 questions will be for you, okay? Sounds good. Okay, so before we launch into the questions, though, 
Let's get your origin story. Like, uh, where are you from? Oh, my goodness. So I'm from here, Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, born and raised in Waipahu on the west side. Awesome. And where did you go to school? I kind of stayed in this area. I went to Waipahu Elementary, ended up at Waipahu Intermediate, and lo and behold, went to Waipahu High School, um, which which is an amazing place. Uh, Then I attended university here at the University of Hawaii, as well as uh, graduate school at Hawaii Pacific University. That's awesome. Okay, so Waipahu born and bred and educated, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Very cool. Okay, so Brian, question number one. Um, So I confess your resume is pretty fantastic. And with so much to cover, I was really not sure where to start this interview. But let's go back a few years to your time at Apple. Um, From 2004 to 2008, you worked as a user interface engineering manager at Apple and Cupertino on projects related to Apple's core iOS and Mac OS software programs like iTunes, iMovie, um, and RSS Reader, among many others. So my question is, what are your fondest memories of those years, Brian? Like, what programs do you look back on and say, damn, I worked on that? Wow, wow. There's so many to pick from, as you can imagine. Um, my my time at Apple was, uh, it was a you know, short four, four years or so, um, but it was, was a very exciting time because I had gotten there just as iTunes was a baby being born um, back in the day. And I tell students this when I talk at, uh, at fairs or at uh, job, job interviews and stuff, that there was a time when the iTunes store was in America only. It was a U.S.-only product, and it only sold tracks, and it only sold them for 99 cents. And most kids are blown away. Like, you guys sold music online at a dollar a track? Like, most of them don't, don't realize that that's how it all started. Um, when I started at Apple, I was pulled onto the iTunes team. Uh, so some of my fondest memories was the the iPod and, and the magic of the iPod and what it what it brought to the tech community. And then iTunes as an enabler for syncing of music and and all of the things that came along in the ecosystem of the iPod. Uh, so I worked a ton on that. Um, I was on the team that helped bring iTunes from. Uh, U.S. only to all the countries that you see today. At that time, we expanded to four different countries, so it was a pretty pretty major deal to be in in, in Japan and and uh, Germany and the U.K. And then I was part of the team that slowly morphed it from just tracks to, at that time, music videos and, and other things until it evolved into you know what we have today. Um, but my other fond memory is is being part of the iPhone team, the first the first iPhone team prior to it being launched. And I must say that that was a super exciting project because sometimes in your life, you work on a product and it changes the world in retrospect. Like you didn't you didn't anticipate that it was going to change the world. Um, you just you just kind of was was on that project and, and it was a massive success and things changed afterwards. And then there's the work that you do when, while you're working on it, you get goosebumps because you know that what you're working on is going to change the world. Not, you know, not looking back, but looking forward. And when I was part of the iPhone team, I think we all felt that. We, we all knew that we were working on something that was, was groundbreaking and revolutionary. And, and while the industry laughed at Steve when he said that we were going to capture 10% of the iPhone, uh, the cell phone market, and last us off the stage, you know, we knew that we were we were changing the world, and and so I, um, that's sort of where I ended my career at Apple on that high note, working on the first iPhone up to the 3GS and the software that came with it. Wow, Brian, you know, around the same time, I was teaching um, at Punahou, actually a little bit before this, um, and I remember. Steve Case, who is, was my classmate at Punahou, we graduated in 1976, and he went on, of course, to found AOL and did a whole bunch of other things. He came back, um, maybe this was sometime around 1998, I think, and he gave a speech at Dillingham Hall on Punahou's campus, and he talked about convergence. And what he was describing, I felt, I felt that same kind of chicken skin sort of moment, like the hair on the back of my neck went up because he was talking about things that were starting to converge um, towards a single, 
you know, element like a device. And it sounds like the development of the phone was one of those epic moments of convergence, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't know if you remember um, Steve's keynote, uh, the other Steve, uh, but he he described the iPhone without describing the iPhone as three separate things. And then if I recall correctly, his animated keynote image kind of swirled the three together because it was like a there's like a computer, yeah. a music player, and an internet browser. Like it was Safari, and so it was like three different things. Um, and he described right. them independently. And then the phone really was a convergence of all three onto a single single device. And so, so you're right. That's exactly where things went. Wow. And so here, Brian, in such a short amount of time, we've already come all the way through the streaming revolution, and now Apple has actually killed iTunes. What do you think about that? Exactly. When you think about it, I, I mean, there was a time when we, we uh, purchased tracks, we synced it to a device, and we, crazy people that are OCD like myself, we backed it up and categorized them and, and stored them, and, and we had thousands and thousands of tracks, and, and those days are gone. And look at the evolution of iTunes itself. Uh, you know, it's, it's with a little bit of a tear to my eye that it's changed so much, but that, that's the world we live in today. And, and I'm wow. a streamer, like, you know, I'm a Spotify user, and uh, I wouldn't buy right. tracks anymore. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I bought a track. I've been uh, streaming Apple Music, all 51 million songs at my disposal uh, for years now. I can't even imagine buying a track. Yeah, exactly. So, so Brian, so what skills and habits and dispositions does a young person need to get in the door at a company like Apple? Like, what is the story uh-huh. of you, Brian, gaining those skills and those habits and dispositions that made you a person uh, that that you know a desirable entity at Apple? That's a um, that's a great question, and and another one that I'm, I'm asked from time to time. What what I think is is the challenge, and um, it's it's challenging for us here in Hawaii, and then it's challenging for me being of Asian descent. I think. And I'm, I'm going to stereotype a little, and I apologize, but this is sort of my my experience. My my parents raised me to not stand out in the crowd, and my 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 mom's famous words is like, you know, the tallest weed is the first to get cut, or whatever, um, whatever it may be. But basically, don't stand out, uh, don't don't be a trailblazer, uh, be just one of the crowd, do a great job, and and that's that's good enough. Um, find stability find safety, but don't don't find a volatile environment. And that's sort of the environment in which I was raised. Uh, and then you, you couple that, you make that with the sort of passivity of, of our culture and uh, being more more passive, being more humble, being more about, um, again, being, being you know, hidden in the crowd, hidden in the crowd of numbers. And then you throw someone like that into the crux of Silicon Valley. And I think that while, while I'm not promoting being uh, boastful or anything like that, I, I do think that you need to prove yourself as part of the solution. And in order to do that, you need to not be a wallflower. Like the, the biggest thing I tell, tell students today is you cannot be a wallflower. If, if you're in a room with 10 engineers and there's a problem that we're trying to solve and you have the greatest idea in the world and you don't say it, then it's useless. Or if you um, say it, but you say it to one engineer in passing at the water cooler because you're afraid of your idea being, uh, you know, dumb or wrong or whatever. If you have all of that, uh, if you lack that self-confidence and you don't share your ideas, then, then again, your idea is pretty much useless. It is only when your idea is kind of barfed out onto the table, thrown into the middle of the room, messy and ugly and, and you know, unpolished, but you're okay with that. Uh, that people can look at it, understand your idea, and then possibly reshape it. Or maybe it is, you know, maybe it's perfect. That's exactly the solution. Or maybe it guides the discussion towards the solution because you, you sort of threw your rock in the stream and the, and the flow of the water kind of changed a little bit. I think that skill is super important. And, and when I first got to the valley, I was the wallflower. Like I sat in a conference room and we discussed problems. And in my mind... I had the I had a solution or a possible solution or some questions that could get us towards the solution, but I was too afraid or too too timid or too passive to to say anything, and, and that doesn't work. Uh, and then at Apple, 
you know, through some great mentors that I've worked with, some great people, I observe how they behave in meetings. And then I try to mimic the people that I, uh, the people whose behaviors resonated with me. And that was one of them. It was raise your hand, you know, share your idea and be okay if your idea is wrong or, or dumb. But if, if you don't share anything, then you don't move the discussion along and you don't move the team closer to, to uh, a solution. And then over time, what happens is you become a necessary part of all teams trying to find solutions. And you become mm-hmm. such a value add to any team that people ask for you to be on their team. Because they, they know. Like, you might not be the subject matter expert in everything, but you are a facilitator of the discovery of solutions. You know, you facilitate discussion and, and ask the right questions to help get the team to the right place. And that, that's hard. I, I think it's hard. I think it was hard uh, in the beginning to kind of not be a wallflower, not be afraid of sharing your ideas, because to be honest, I feel like I was raised to do the exact opposite. You know, I was raised to not raise my hand because that's the hand that would get chopped off, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. Does that, does that help? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. God, Brian, you know, I I think of my own upbringing, you know, on, on the windward side of Oahu, and you couldn't get me to say anything, especially in school, if you hit me with a stick. I was just raised to keep my head down. Um, and that didn't change for me until actually I made a pretty crazy decision. My first career was as a chef, but as a chef, I was a back of house chef, right? I was the prep chef. That was my okay. role was the person who was getting everything ready for the frontline guys who were doing, you know, the flaming pans and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I found that in those back kitchens, I was getting very lonely and I was, you know, it was it was playing into my introversion. And I made this decision. I was living in San Diego. Like from one day to the next, I decided I'm going to go work in hotels and I'm going to work on the front lines, like at the front desk. And I got a job like within a week on the front at the front desk of a resort hotel in San Diego. And bam, wow. all of a sudden there I was with people, like hundreds of people who are coming in every day. And it completely <laughs> changed the arc of my life. Um, so yes, I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, but it is a thing for us in Hawaii, right? The kids um, tend to be raised that way. So that's super interesting. Um, so going back a little bit further, Brian, in your time away from Hawaii, um, you're a web developer at North Point Communications, an IT analyst and web developer at Cisco Systems, and a, a senior software engineer at Insight Corporation. So what were some of the most exciting projects you worked on during those years in the early 2000s? Oh, my goodness. The early 2000s were amazing. Um, for for a, a tech geek like myself, it was, it was like nirvana. Um, I, I want to say that the, the other most exciting projects or, or sort of area that I worked in was at Insight because if you remember at the time, the the big biopharma or bio, uh, biotech companies were racing to sequence the human genome and it was a big deal. I mean, it was our right. sort of our Y2K moment and we were, we were one of the companies that had built massive data centers. Well, I laugh today because our massive data center of, of then is, is like, you know, Manini compared to something that Google or Apple has today. But at the time, we had these massive data centers and we're doing robotics to do uh, genomic sequencing and all of these crazy cool science stuff. And we were, we were in a race because the idea at the time, the mentality was that with a full understanding of uh, the human genome, we could create sort of designer drugs right? or designer pharmaceuticals or optimize pharmaceuticals. And so it was, um, it, it was, compelling work. It was passionate, compelling work. We were trying to build the, the data so that the, the uh, pharmaceutical companies could create and develop drugs that would help humanity. And so that was super exciting. And at the time, it was cutting edge. And, and biotechs were the, were the, you know, the stars of the valley at the, at the time, in the late 90s. And so that was a, that was a lot, a lot of fun. And I, I learned a lot. And it kind of went hand in hand with some of my education at UH because I was a, I was a zoology major uh, so I've, I've done a lot of similar types of work and so genetics was was a lot of fun for me and I enjoyed it a lot it was it was kind of like for me one, one area that I love is the, the intersection of education and technology another area that I, I also love is the integration of technology with science and and biotechs were exactly that it was you know cutting edge science and then cutting edge tech to what extent did all the people who were working 
especially on the on the genome project to what extent did they know like what the implications of that project were for humanity as a whole like did, you know, did people I, I know think, yeah, yeah. It's a, that's a great question i i think um sadly part of it is you you are part of this humanity possibly humanity changing uh research or, or development but you are also have your you know your nose to the ground and you're so focused on your tiny 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 piece of this massive puzzle and, and your tiny technological uh, solution to this ginormous thing that is being built that you you lose sight of the overall like the overall vision of it until you look back on it uh, for me it, it was that way and and I think it was you know a, a lack of leadership sometimes when the companies that you work for, they didn't paint that picture for you. So mm-hmm. our CEO didn't stand up and um, make us all passionate and excited about what we were doing because we were possibly solving you know, Alzheimer's or whatever, whatever the drugs at the time we were working on. Um, they didn't necessarily do that well. And, and that, that kind of contrasts to my time at Apple where Steve did that inc- incredibly well. Uh, so, right. I don't think we were well aware of the implications of the impact other than what we would read in, in, you know, Times Magazine or see on the news about the Human Genome Project or uh, sequencing in general. It it wasn't, it wasn't in the culture at where I was, but it wasn't part of, um, it wasn't part of what we talked about. We were more deeper in the weeds at a technical level of how the hell are we going to make all of this data accessible to scientists? How are we going to visualize it? How are they going to interact with it? You know, and, and obviously it's a business, so how are we going to charge for it? How are we going to monetize it, et cetera, et cetera? Wow, that's so interesting. So, so Brian, you came back to Hawaii in 2008 and over um, several years worked as a mobile application designer and developer at, um, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, is it Arkinetics? Uh, Arkinetics, you... Arkinetics, yeah. Got it. And then um, as the co-founder and engineer lead at um, Biblio, um, so what brought you back to the islands and what can you share with us about the work that you did at these two companies? So, um, you know, basically there's a, there's a shelf life, I think, to, to engineers and engineering managers in, in the Valley. And I think that through, through major milestones in your life, as you go through those milestones, you kind of, uh, if this is a video game, you sort of level up, right? And hmm. when you're in your mid, mid to late 20s and you can stay up for 14 hours a day for seven days in a row and not get sick and you can do all those crazy things, it's a super exciting place. And it's, uh, you know, you, you can't change the world on, on eight hours a day. Um, but then you get to a point in your life where other things become priorities like family, raise, raising kids, uh, maybe taking care of your parents. And as you get older, it becomes a little bit more difficult to be working seven days a week at some crazy, insane pace. And and so, you know, with that in mind, at a certain age, it just made more sense to raise a family and raise a family back home. And I think the, the beauty of Hawaii and and part of it uh, that I always tell students is that you you can go to the mainland or some other place and, and have successes and, and do, do great things. But, you know, Hawaii will always be home for you. And you always have a place to come back to. And that's exactly what I did is I went to the Valley, had success, and then came back home. Because family and ultimately, um, you know, everything else was here. So coming back home was just kind of a, a no-brainer to, to start a family. Um, mm-hmm. After being home for a little bit, because at first I was a remote engineer for Apple. So I was still working at Apple remotely. Oh, eventually, eventually, I eventually I felt sort of, uh, I guess, sort of in purgatory, like disconnected from the Valley and then disconnected from Hawaii because I worked weird hours in an office of one person and didn't have the interaction that I that I craved. Yet, um, it was hard to get an interaction because I didn't work in, in Hawaii. I, I was, you know, living in Hawaii, but I was working sort of Cupertino hours. So it was it was a little strange during those times that I, and I finally decided I really, really, really need to integrate with the local community um, because I'm living here again. I'm back. I'm back home. And the amazing thing at the time was Twitter. Like, I mean, Twitter had been around for a little while. I was a Twitter user back when it was only SMS messaging. But um, when I came back to Hawaii, 
Twitter was huge. I mean, it was it was the communication medium. And through Twitter, I started to reintegrate with the tech community and then um, made connections. And that's how I got the job at Arcanoetics eventually, is it, through um, tweet-ups and, and uh, conferences and other things that were going on sort of through the Twitterverse back in the day. Uh, Arcanoetics was a dual-use technology company out of the Act 221 here in Hawaii. So part of it was to work on government research, R&D for uh, DARPA or the Office of Naval Research or other um, sort of large federal agencies. And then the other part of it was to commercialize those products for the, uh, for the company itself. And so I was brought on due to my work at Apple to help commercialize some of the technologies that the company was working on um, for, for, the, for the military or for uh, the Navy. And so there... The challenge was to take these sort of raw, scientific, crazy cool inventions and figure out their fit in the consumer market and figure out how to, how to uh, make it work and how to sell it and how to package it and how to market it and how to make it look good and all of those things. So I did user interfaces for some of the products that the company was working on, um, both for you know, its use in, in like for a warfighter like, what does the UI look like for a warfighter? And then taking that and trying to commercialize that same product for the mass market. Mm. It, was, it was a wow. lot of fun. Wow, that's so interesting. So, so Brian, like, I remember, so Twitter to me is like, it's like super important. One of my former students uh, from my time at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls, um, she got a degree in communications from the University of Washington. And um, I reached out to her to teach me how to use Twitter. It was like six years ago. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'll teach you how to use Twitter. And uh, it was like super funny. You know what? The first thing that she taught me was you have to have a personal account that you tweet from. And then you have to have some sort of other account that you retweet from. And that way, you know, for sure, you're always going to get one retweet. And I just laughed my head off when she taught me that, you know. But seriously, one of the things that's been really amazing over the last few years is the explosion of Twitter accounts across our public schools. Um, people who are teachers, staff members, uh, principals, um, administrators, um, even in the, in the hierarchy of the Department of Education, there's just an astonishing jump in the number of Twitter accounts. And if you pay attention to it sort of from a 10,000 foot level, you can really get an aggregated look at what's happening. It's like this organic window into things that are happening on the ground. Um, so it sounds like that's something that you really tapped, to, uh, tapped into yeah. when you came back. When I, when I came back, the, the, the Twitterverse was, um, was, was very chatty and was a lot of um, kind of back and forth talk amongst you know, different sort of different segments of our community. And then in recent times, I see exactly what you mentioned. And the, the teaching community, the educational community is incredibly strong, incredibly strong on Twitter. I, I'm surprised at the volume of communication and collaboration that goes on, uh, the multi, multi, multi-message threads that are going back and forth and the sharing and the camaraderie. I, I, I kind of am jealous sometimes. Like, you don't see software engineers telling each other, you know, those things, but the teachers yeah. are so supportive of each other. Their community is so incredibly strong on Twitter. And, and if I could ask or throw out there, like, I wonder why that is. Like, why did the uptake of Twitter or a communication platform like Twitter just spread like wildfire and continue to be fostered today because uh, it spread like wildfire in other industries and then kind of just petered out. But in the education industry, it is it is amazing um, at how much discussion just goes on. If you, if you follow even just a few educators, you, you'll see mm-hmm. just the sheer volume of discussion and communication. And, and I wonder, like, what is it, like you said, like, what is it, why is it all the way to the top and and to the bottom and to the left and to the right in the education industry and why is it so prevalent, pronounced and heavily used. Um, you know, it's really, it's really you know, interesting. Brian, I, yeah, I think that there's actually two answers to that. One of them is that there's been a select group of people who really understood Twitter and really started to ensure that there were hashtags that everybody was familiar with and, and they were building account um, followers and people that they were following you know, sort of one person at a time. And then the other answer, I think, to that question is 
that the Schools of the Future Conference, which is put on by the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, and it's now, what, in its 11th or 12th year, they actually made a deliberate decision three years ago to start featuring Twitter as part of the conference. Um, And that meant that people were creating accounts during the conference to follow all of the relevant hashtags that were out there. And then they just kept on going after the conference was over. And it was really interesting to watch that happen. So, yeah, you know, it takes a lot of sense now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, everyone, stay with us. We're going to take a short break and come back with more questions for Brian Dote. Stay with us. What could your school do with $25,000? Hawaii Public School teachers apply for the Education Innovation Grant from Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation to make your big idea a reality. The Education Innovation Grant fosters unique, innovative learning experiences benefiting teachers, students, and the greater community. The deadline to apply is May 30th. One Oahu winner and one neighbor island winner will be announced in October. To apply, go to FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Okay, so now that we've gotten to know you a little bit, Brian, it's it's time for some questions I've been itching to ask you for a long time. Um, so in 2013, uh, Mid-Pacific Institute President Paul Turnbull created the Chief Innovation Officer position for his medium-sized independent school here on Oahu. And after a search, he hired you to be that CIO. So Brian, why did Paul create the position, which is very unusual, um, and what skills and habits and dispositions did he see in your resume that told him you were the guy to move Mid-Pacific, a school, a K-12 school, towards a, you know, a culture of innovation? Great, great question. Um, I think Paul, being innovative himself, saw the future and what was needed. He clearly saw the role of technology in education or educational technology and knew that that's where the school needed needed to go or education needed to go in general. He he is an innovator himself. Um, Paul Paul brought the LIDAR scanning program to Mid-Pacific when he arrived. And that was a very, very innovative uh, set of curriculum and equipment and technology and teaching. And, and that kind of started the ball rolling. And then he subsequently built the right environment for innovation to take root because, you know, it, it takes care and feeding for that kind of stuff to work. And so he had, he had already been building that and then started looking for someone uh, to fill the CIO role. Um, as, as a chief innovation officer, what Paul needed was the, the person that could speak both languages, the person that could understand the technology community and the technology in general, and then could turn around and also make that accessible and uh, sort of human readable and, and, you know, something that could be used by teachers and students and staff. And so if you think of, like, some, some people in your life, they, they are a great engineer, but they can't draw, right? So other people in your life, they can design and draw the most beautiful things, but they can't write. What, what Paul needed was someone that could do all of those things, so could, could understand technology, could understand education, could see where the two intersect and, and, you know, connect them and could see where the two don't intersect and stay away from that. Um, and that's what Paul needed in a CIO and that's what the school needed. And I think when you look at my background, it is sort of that very, like you mentioned in the very beginning of this podcast, it is very varied. Uh, there's a lot of different industries that I've, I've worked and played in. And I think that kind of mentality the, the understanding that you can connect dots that shouldn't be connected or that you might try to connect dots that shouldn't be connected is, is super important to, to a CIO um, because you want, to, you want to go where people have not gone before. You want to bring technologies into education. And when the, the teachers or the students raise their hands to ask, well, how have others done it? The answer is, well, no one's done it. Um, you know, what have others done like this? Well, no one's done anything like this. And that's the space where I tried to go, and that's the space where we were headed um, at the time. And, and so someone like myself with a technology background with connections to both the Valley and, and local technology companies and a, a good understanding of what's coming and, and what's ahead is critical. And, and the challenge that, that I thank Paul for was that I wasn't from the education world. 
So I was a non-educator in an education environment. And I think that in the beginning, that was a little uh, overwhelming for me. I had never worked in a school before. I had never worked in education before. And there's, there's so much to learn. But, you know, Paul was like, you don't need to be, you, you don't need to be the best teacher. Um, you're, you're not here to be the best educator, but you're here to facilitate the exchange of ideas and, and uh, information between the two. So you need to understand enough about education so that you can be effective. And he really helped me learn those pieces, um, learn those pieces of how school works and how teachers and students interact and all of the pieces that go together to make a school successful. Um, I lacked that when I first started. Like I had no clue. I had no clue what what uh, teaching was like. I had no clue what operating a school was like. But I totally and uh, inside and out understood the tech community. Mm. So, Brian, I'm so, thinking, yeah. you know, that, that our radio audience out there, there might be, you know, public or charter or independent school leaders who are thinking to themselves as they listen to you, like, oh, maybe I should have a, you know, a chief innovation officer. But it sounds like that's not a step that you want to take lightly, that you have to lay some groundwork before you go in that direction, right? Exactly. Um, you know, to if you think about raising a horse, um, as an example, you, you don't want to go out and buy or acquire a beautiful stallion or whatever the term is for, for a beautiful racehorse. And you haven't built a barn and you have no one to train and you have no, no one to ride and no space for it. Um, that, that would be a mistake, right? So you, you really, really need to be intentional, intentional about laying the, the groundwork for all the things that are required for that to be successful. And I go back to sort of care and feeding. Um, there's a lot that's required to build a culture of innovation. And there's a lot that's required to be successful in that. And just going out and, and bringing some uh, technologically advanced person into an education environment doesn't mean you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I would say 99% of the time that might um, probably be unsuccessful mm-hmm. unless you've sort of laid that groundwork and, and kind of painted the runway and have things ready. Uh, otherwise, otherwise you, you're wasting you know, time and money. Mm. So early on as chief innovation officer, what were some of the headwinds that you ran into that were, were difficult to navigate? Well, for one, you know, people weren't used to a chief innovation officer on, on campus and, and wasn't sure what that meant and how that was going to work out. Um, they weren't sure, people people in general weren't sure um, what, what, what the specifics of the role was. Uh, and then as time went on and, you know, we were bringing in technology to the school, there's the danger of bringing in too much technology too fast, right. uh, which, which leads to... Like you can't just bring in the latest whiz bang from the industry and throw it in the lap of a teacher and say, have fun, you know, see you later. Uh, there's so much more that's required. And I didn't realize that. Like I was totally, totally a newbie and didn't get it. So I was being, I was fascinated by, um, you know, AR and VR and all of these crazy, amazing, cool technologies and needed to learn the groundwork part of it. You need to build in professional development. How are you going to support these teachers in the classroom when they, when 30 students put on an Oculus and the, and the app crashes? Um, how are you going to provide the hardware for that? How are you going to upkeep the hardware for that? How are you going to even you know, deal with the, the cleaning of those units? And how are you going to deal with the storage and the safety and security? I mean, it's, all of a sudden, the operational side is, is ginormous. There's so many things to consider that I, I had to learn on the fly because I had never worked in a classroom environment before. So for me, if an app crashes, I restart it and I'm on my merry way. And I, I figure out why it crashed and I, I do something different. But in a teaching environment with 45 minutes and 30 students, you don't have the luxury of having an app crash and just kind of figuring it out on the fly all the time. You, you sort of need safety nets and supports and need training. Right. And that, that was a, an early, early lesson um, that I learned. And, and fortunately, people at Mississippi were very patient and helped me sort of get my feet under me when it came to things like that. Because I had no clue. I, I, was, I was clueless in that sense. Wow, that's so interesting. Hey, everyone, stay with us. We're going to take a short break and come back with more questions for Brian Dote. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii. 
a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of EdTech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page and scroll down to EdTech. We'll see you there. So Brian, currently Mid-Pacific aspires to graduate innovators, artists, and individuals. And the Mid-Pacific technology vision statement, which you helped develop or developed, states the school aspires to graduate computational thinkers, digital storytellers, and engineers. So from your perch as the chief innovation officer, how did you go about like weaving this tapestry of K-12 aspirations together on campus? That's a great question. Um, we, we worked to build the technology vision statement so that the school was not just going to attach itself to the next bright shining. And so the technology vision statement was really our wayfinding mechanism to make sure that when a new piece of technology came about, we didn't just rush to get it for no no reason, um, other than it's you know bright, shiny, cool, and everyone wants one. Uh, so the tech vision statement was very very good as a roadmap and as our gut check. You know, if if there's this new technology out there and it's not satisfying one of the one of the three key tenants, then we should probably not pursue it um, because it's not within our, our vision. We should stay true to our vision. And so with the tech vision in place and those three three pillars, uh, it became easy to to decide what to pursue and what not to pursue and then how best to leverage that technology. So when you take something like digital storytelling, for example, mm. there's so many facets to a given piece of technology, but we wanted digital storytelling to be the facet. So while you can think of... Um, you know, let's take something pretty ubiquitous like social media, like like an Instagram account. You know, that that can be that can be many many things. But if you if you teach it and use it as a tool to teach the the key principles of storytelling, namely digital storytelling, you you have a powerful tool in your in your pocket. And so we really use the guiding principles of the tech vision statement to guide us along to kind of create that well-rounded student. Um, from, from my purview as chief innovation officer, I didn't have to spend as much time on the other as, uh, other aspects of a student's life at school. Hmm. So, you know, the great faculty and administration and staff really rounded out the students in terms of, you know, artists or individuals and, and all of the other parts. Um, and I, I really was given, given the time and space to focus on the innovation aspect. So that's the computational thinkers, the digital storytellers, Correct. and the engineers. Right, got it. Correct. You know, I, I can share with you, Brian, this is really neat to be able to share this with you, um, that back in, I don't know, maybe 2006, 2005, somewhere around there, if you recall, Apple um, uh, created something called a one-to-one program. So if you bought a Mac, um, you were um, given the opportunity to spend 99 bucks and you got a one-to-one membership, which meant for a year, you could go into the Apple store for once a week and get an hour's worth of training. I mean, when I, I was teaching at La Pietra and when I heard about this, I just practically fell out of my chair. I'm like, for only $99, right? And so, so they were almost like my chief, you know, innovation officer, the Apple store at Kahala, because we're like a mile apart from each other. And I think I set a record for like 47 weeks in a row. I went down and got special training, you know, in iMovie (laughs) and and in pages and in keynote. And my favorite was iWeb. I built my first teacher website and I was like crushed when Apple dropped iWeb. Um, And so, you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the ways that you must have been so supportive of people on Mid-Pacific's campus as they aspire to take a step forward, to take that one step forward and to do something different and then to figure out how to move forward from that one step. So like, what what did that feel like personally to you and in your heart and in your mind as you began to support people uh, on campus as they did their thing? That is a, that is a, a great, great question. Um, what, what I find unique about Education is, is that is, is that it pulls on your heart um, when you when you work with teachers 
to implement something that they haven't tried before and they're excited to try, or maybe they're not excited to try. I mean, some of the best successes, the best um, feel-good moments, the best ones where you, when your your heart sort of shines, is when the teacher that was reluctant to even take it out of the box. I mean, how many times, right? Yeah. The teacher doesn't want to take it out of the box. And then you, you know, through um, collaboration, through training, through walking them through and showing them other other ways of using something, uh, they they fall in love with using that that tool as part of their classroom, and and those those moments are super rewarding. But I think what is equally, if not more rewarding, is when you see the same thing happen in students. Um, you know, anecdotal stories of students that ended up in career paths or ended up going to uh, universities to study things that they didn't intend on studying when they were at Mid-Pacific until they came across maybe a coding class or a robotics class or, or did something innovative or worked on, worked on a mobile app design or, or did something like that and then decided that, hey, they love this stuff and they're going to do it as a career. And then, and, you know, you, you've experienced this many, many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they contact you later and they're like, Remember that one time that you showed me, you know, A, B, and C? Well, well, I ended up loving that, and now I'm studying that, or now I'm doing that in the industry, or now I'm inventing the next A, B, and C, and, and, and it's pretty amazing. And I, I think that in education, you have those heartwarming moments that you don't get in many other industries, if any, uh, in the same way. Mm. And it's like the greatest feeling in the world, yeah? Um, when you when you exactly, hear those stories, exactly. yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. I want I want to ask you one more thing about um, your role as chief innovation officer. Mid Pacific's sure. website um, notes that technology is one of the many "quote unquote" languages students use in their lives as they grow, and I'm curious about the you know the use of the word language in relation to technology. Like, how is technology a language that you have to master? You know, in the same way that you might master English or a foreign language or you know, or any other kind of language. That's a that's a um, that's a great question. I need I need a I'm wondering. I think technology is a language not in the sense of the grammatical or the syntactical term, but language as a means to achieve something. And typically, that that achieve achieve something means the ability to share, communicate, gain empathy. And get people to understand what you know, your idea, your concept, what you're doing. And um, I think technology or technology tools are, are or can be exactly that. Uh, they are a language by which I use these tech tools to express myself. Mm-hmm. And through expression, I'm sharing ideas or a story, or I'm um, making you feel emotions that you might not have felt otherwise. You know. Mm-hmm. Sort of the, the beauty of storytelling and digital storytelling is I, I'm I'm taking you on a journey, and I'm using this language, the language of technology, as my tool to bring you along. You know, I, I, it could be um, other languages, but but this this is a language amongst others, and, and really it is not. I think technology is not a language um, in isolation. Like it can't exist by itself, right? It has to it has to be in combination with many other languages for it to provide a compelling experience. Wow, that's so interesting. It's like language is the mechanism by which we make sense of the world, and technology exactly. is just one of many languages. Or how we communicate. Yeah, right, exactly. Right, exactly. How, we, how we tell our stories. Wow, that's so cool. Hey, everyone. We're going to break this episode with Brian Dote into two parts, or two separate episodes. Stay tuned next week for part two of this conversation when Brian and I dig into teacher professional development innovation at Waipahu High School, designing a 21st century transcript, and Brian's thoughts on black swan theory, among other epic topics. We'll see you soon. We can't thank you enough for your curiosity and commitment as you listen to this episode of the What School Could Be in What You podcast. As an aspiring learner, the uncertainty of this COVID-19 pandemic has literally created a different reality for not just me, but all of my peers. As my team of creators from Hawk Media Productions now navigate what collaboration, creativity, and communication looks like, we are inspired to believe it is a moment in time for all of us to use this opportunity to make learning and serving come alive for others.
The stories in our history books often reveal the lessons that is within these dark moments. When sparks of innovation and boldness flourish to ignite movement of change for our schools, our community, and our world. To each one of our listeners, we want to thank you for your courage in embracing the opportunities of what school could be here in Hawaii and beyond. Let's keep changing our world together. Welcome back to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. The first season of our podcast ends shortly. Stay tuned for special on-the-road episodes that will air from time to time from May through August. And stay tuned for information about season two, coming in the fall of 2020. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant is Ryan Ozawa. Our audio engineer for this episode is Daniel Gillard. The editor for this episode is Marlon Utrera. Our post-production student manager is May Kanata under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed.